Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back. It's been a while. What a wonderful season uh, we've been in. It's been a little bit hot, too hot, especially in some parts of our province. And so we're grateful for a little cooler, damper weather that uh, has come. <clears throat> and uh, hopefully, hopefully that won't prevent you from uh, getting in the, the seat in the ground. <clears throat> um, it has been a time of cultivation and uh, planting. And it's good to see the evidence of that as I uh, drove into the city, into your town last night. <clears throat> and it's also been as... Uh, Ben has prayed that time here in the church. We've been doing some groundwork to uh, plan for the future <clears throat> of the church. And we call this a transition time for the church. And for those of you who are watching online, uh, my name is Ed Drulo, and I'm uh, serving as a transition pastor during this time. It's my privilege to be working with the church. I've uh, really enjoyed getting to know <clears throat> the the people of the church and uh, some in this community as well. I want to thank those who participated in the, in the assessment survey. Um, they uh, will be meeting, uh, the assessment team will be meeting to assess your response, uh, seeking to summarize what we've been hearing, helping to formulate <clears throat> a larger assessment of the church's needs, especially also for its next pastor. I'm really grateful for the privilege I have of uh, serving the church in this way during this time, uh, guiding you in this process. And one of the ways I've been seeking to do this is by the messages that I bring to you on the Sundays that I'm here, which are usually the middle two Sundays of the month or close to that. <clears throat> and what I want to do is try to give you a bigger picture of what's really important in our spiritual lives and in the life of the church. And this morning, we continue with another one of those kinds of messages. I want to begin with a question this morning, and it is this. <clears throat> if you had to sum up the Bible in one word, what would it be? Any takers? Love, right? Grace? What's that? Truth. Great. Anybody else? You know, these are all really, really good words. And uh, <clears throat> I, I think that all of them relate to the one word that I believe uh, sums up the entire scriptures. Are you ready for it? <clears throat> Jesus. If there's one way that we can encompass all that the Bible is about... It comes down to this person, whom I want to talk to you about uh, this morning. <clears throat> For example, in these scriptures, it says, John 5, 39, you diligently study the scriptures because you think by them you possess eternal life. But Jesus says, these are the scriptures that testify about me. <clears throat> And in Luke 24, 27, remember he was walking with a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus, it says, and it said, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was in all the scriptures concerning himself. And that's what makes the Bible so very special. It reveals who Jesus is to us. And that's the main message of the Bible. John 5, 23, Jesus says, 
that all, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. In a very real way, the Old Testament in its entirety prepares the way and has many allusions to Jesus and the work that he, he will come to do. As far back as, as Adam and Eve, God provides both a promise and a covering <clears throat> that refer in many ways to Jesus and what he would come to do. We have only to think of the law handed down through Moses or the sacrificial system for the children of Israel during his time. And then there are the many words of prophecy that speak of Jesus' coming. But it's in the Gospels, which are really at the very center of the Bible in many ways, that we see the climax of God's revelation. And just to emphasize the point, there are four Gospels, and they are all the same, but also different, making the story of Jesus that much more believable. And this morning, I just wanted to look with you at one story from the Gospels. It's in the Gospel of Mark. Mark, of course, has uh, been written largely, or it was written by Mark, but it really concerns the life and ministry of Peter. Peter apparently handed down much of what he knew concerning Jesus to Mark, who wrote it down. And uh, Peter has a special way of talking about Jesus. Peter, of course, as you know, was a man of action. He doesn't tell us about Jesus' birth as he begins the gospel. He just gets right to the point of Jesus' ministry. And I love this gospel because of how direct, how forthright, how active it is. And it gives us an amazing picture of Jesus as a man on a mission, a man who knew who he was and where he'd come from and where he was going. So this morning I direct you to this passage in Mark chapter 4, uh, verses 35 to 41 especially. The story follows Jesus' teaching uh, to the people that were gathered on the lakeshore, apparently, and he went into a boat, actually, to teach them because they were crowding him so much. He got into a boat and he taught them, and he taught them in parables. And there are four parables here before this incident, and the parables have to do with the this, this seed, the good seed, and uh, the mustard seed, and uh, uh, another kind of seed, and then uh, the lamp set on a stand. But then uh, it says here, with many similar parables, in verse 33, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. In fact, he said, it says here, he did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Then it says, that day when, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side, the other side of the lake. So leaving the crowd behind, it says, they took him along, just as he was, in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind 
and the waves obey him. So you get the picture here of what's happening. Uh, Jesus evidently and his disciples have been very busy. They are in the region of Galilee, just north of Jerusalem. And uh, Galilee is about 120 kilometers or 75 miles, a three days journey. Sort of like from here to Medicine Hat. Gives you some idea uh, how far they would have to walk in order to get to this area. And it seems Jesus is constantly being surrounded by people in need. There are physical needs for healing and also for deliverance from various kinds of spirits, demonic spirits. But there are also needs for understanding about life, and especially in the context of the political situation of that time. So they are crowding in on him. Once the crowd was so thick in a house where Jesus was teaching that a desperate group of men had to lower their paralytic friend through a hole that they made in the, in the roof of the house. Twice in this short, short section of the gospel, it speaks of Jesus speaking from a boat in the, uh, along the uh, lakeshore. Once his family tries to come and rescue him because they think he's going crazy. And Jesus, it seems, couldn't go anywhere without people wanting his attention. And very quickly, he was becoming a star, a hero of his time and of his nation, much like we, went, we might see someone become that today. So we, as we come to the end of Mark, uh, chapter 4, he's been teaching the people, and as evening came, it seems that he felt the need for some rest and some renewal. My wife and I have recently been watching the, uh, the uh, series called The Chosen. How many of you have seen that uh, movie series? It's a, it, it represents, it's an interpretation, but it rep- represents very well what it must have been like for Jesus and the disciples to do the things that they did in that time. It, it's, a, it's kind of a graphic. It, it makes the scriptures uh, come alive as you, as you read that. So I would commend that, that uh, series to you. You know, sometimes it's easy for us to miss the fact that in many ways, Jesus was just like us. He too needed rest like we do. He was completely human. There was a time in the history of the church when it was common for people to think that Jesus wasn't really human, that he was actually from another world, that he only seemed human. And this idea was called docetism, and it comes from a Greek word that means to seem. But the problem with this kind of thinking is that Jesus is beyond us, that he's not really one of us, that he never really suffered, never actually even really died. But thankfully, references like the one we're looking at this morning make it clear that Jesus really was human. He was just like the rest of us as far as his body and even his emotions were concerned. He got hungry and and tired just like we do. He too knew what it was to sometimes feel like he needed some alone time. You know, thankfully, this idea of docetism was condemned by the Church of the Council of Chalcedon, in 451 A.D. <clears throat> that was a very interesting uh, conference. It was, uh, or council, it, it was held in this uh, place called Chalcedon at the time, <clears throat> which today is uh, kind of like where Istanbul, Turkey, is on the Black Sea. So if you want to locate that, that's where it was, 451. And the whole idea of this conference was to come to some conclusion as to the the nature of Christ. And they, they came to the conclusion that Jesus had two natures. 
a human nature and a divine nature which were perfectly combined in who he was. They call it the homostatic union, <laughs> if you want a theological term to uh, identify that, that Jesus is both human and divine. Well, anyway, this Council of Chalcedon is interesting because it illustrates how a church body guided by good leaders made a very good decision, something like that's good for us to keep in mind when we gather for, for our meetings together. Anyway, this story in Mark makes it clear that Jesus really was fully human. And that's so encouraging to me, and I hope it's encouraging to you too, that Jesus suffered in all the ways that we suffer. <clears throat> so it's probably in this state of weariness that he says to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. Even Jesus recognized, as we, say, as we said, that there's a time for rest and rejuvenation. So it appears that they, they took charge and took him along into the boat, just as he was, and other boats followed. But the thing that really comes to occupy our attention is the storm that developed and how the disciples handled it. And no doubt some of you have had the privilege of going to Israel. You've seen this lake, perhaps been in a boat on this lake, as we have been, uh, because of how the lake is situated, storms can be very, very frequent and sudden. The lake measures about 12 by 21 kilometers, 8 by 16 miles. And uh, this was not the only time that Jesus and the disciples got into a storm on the Sea of Galilee, as we know. But in this particular instance, their little craft appeared to almost be swamped by the waves. And no doubt, <clears throat> the disciples, just as we would have, panicked as they tried to do everything they possibly could to keep their little craft afloat and to keep from drowning. Jesus, meanwhile, this is so interesting to me, tired as he was, is sleeping on a cushion. And uh, you might think, well, <clears throat> maybe, uh, maybe he's even snoring away, right? And uh, is he doing this? Uh, is he it appears he is unmindful of the seriousness of the storm or the plight of the people in the boat, but maybe he's just testing their faith. Maybe he's got one eye open. <laughs> anyway, I, I like to imagine some of these things as I think of Jesus there in the boat with the disciples in these circumstances. Finally, the disciples, in their desperation, wake Jesus up with a question, and they say, Teacher, don't you care that we're drowning? Don't you care that we're, we're going to be uh, okay? And in such circumstances, we might have reacted similarly. But in retrospect, it's really a kind of a strange question, isn't it? Because isn't the one, doesn't the one who called them to follow him not care about their lives? Does the creator of the whole universe not care about those he created? Is he blind to their difficulties? And did they wonder what might also happen to Jesus if the boat did capsize? <clears throat> And so, he, so, so anyway, in response to their question and concern and their alarm, he gets up, rebukes the wind, and says to it, quiet, be still. And the wind dies down quick, quiet, quickly, and the waves become calm. <clears throat> I love this story, because it illustrates our human tendency to get all excited when things don't quite go the way we think they should how we tend to work really hard instead of praying. But maybe we should give the, the disciples a little more credit because in the end they did pray. They went to Jesus and said, 
help. <laughs> but he also had some things to teach the disciples in this experience, and he asked the question, why were you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? In other words, have you been with me for all this time and, and seen so much and still don't realize that it's going to be okay? Well, Mark tells us all of this terrified them, perhaps the storm, but even more so the wonder of what they had just seen, the largeness of this man with them in the boat. And it caused them to ask the question, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Some things never change, do they? Storms come and anxieties about them persist. And no doubt, no doubt some of you, <laughs> no doubt at all, have been in similar circumstances. You know, for uh, when I was much younger, uh, starting out in life, sort of, in one of my teens and early 20s, I served as a deckhand on a tugboat on the Arrow Lakes. I did that for five summers. And so I had experience on the water, on the lake. And uh, I can tell you, I know exactly what happens when the waves start coming up. We used to put these big, big log rafts together and try to tie them to, to, uh, to uh, you know, some way that they wouldn't move around, these uh, big pillars. And uh, when the winds came up and things were going all crazy, man, I tell you, the... the, the, the uh, the, the yelling and the panic was, was pretty, pretty strong. <clears throat> and so uh, I, I, I know something of what might have been happening here. You know, if you listen to the news, it seems there are always threatening storms. Even now we wonder about the ongoing political storms around us in the Sudan most recently, the Ukraine, of course, and even certain ones like our, that happen here in our own country. Uh, in Canada, Alberta. And then there's the physical storms in our worlds, flooding, tornadoes, disease, as you know, <laughs> and fires. There's an important sense in which these happenings should not surprise us. Later on in Mark 13, we read that Jesus said, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pangs. So way back there in New Testament times, Jesus said that such times would surely come. And just as he asked the disciples in similar circumstances, so he asked us today, why are you so afraid? Do you have no faith? Well, the global concerns are one thing, but then there are personal storms we endure that would sometimes make us wonder if we're going to survive. Work problems, financial troubles, health scares, relationship issues, family problems, and yes, technical issues as well. In the last week or so, I've had big technical issues, and I've been so upset about it because it means canceling a credit card, all those kind of stuff, right? Somebody's been getting into things, and it causes problems. And, and it, the, the tendency is for us to, to get, well, as I said, panicked in those situations. <clears throat> Our natural inclination is to work hard and panic at the same time, even though we know that Jesus is right there with us in our boat. 
Many years ago, I led a wedding ceremony in a lovely outdoor setting in the backyard of the bride's family home. It was a beautiful day, even though the forecast threatened a storm. Everything was calm and sunny as can be, but you could see a dark cloud uh, coming, uh, looming in the not too far away, uh, even as the people were gathering for this event. But at 3 p.m., as the ceremony began, storm clouds were looming. So I prayed publicly that we might get through the ceremony before the storm came. And about 10 minutes into the ceremony, the wind came, and everyone started to be distracted and to panic. But I pressed on, changing the ceremony a bit to ensure we'd get through it. But there are some things you can't leave out of a wedding ceremony, right? There's the vows. The vows are the most important part. They're the public declaration of commitment that uh, are made to each other. And then there's the exchange of rings, the kiss, of course, the embrace, the prayer of dedication, the pronouncement of marriage, and the registration. Well, I had no sooner finished my prayer and pronounced the couple husband and wife when the wind really picked up and the rain began to fall. And I've never seen guests disperse so quickly as they did that day. Everyone grabbed a chair and headed for the tent where the reception was to take place. And it was quite an amazing experience. But it it seemed to me that God answered prayer that day for for us in that situation. Uh, A storm at a wedding doesn't seem appropriate, does it? But from what I know, the couple has done just fine. As I was preparing this message, I found myself meditating in my daily devotions on a, on a passage. It's uh, Psalm 124. And I was so impressed with this beautiful expression of victory in the midst of the storm. If the Lord had not been on our side, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side when people attacked us, they would have swallowed us alive. When their anger flared against us, the flood would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging waters would have swept us away. Praise be to the Lord, who has not let us be torn by their teeth. We escaped like a bird from the fowler's snare. The snare has been broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. You know what Philippians Four, six, and seven says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We need to remember the words of that, that old children's song. I don't know if you remember it, uh, but I, I remember a, a, a young kid singing this in the church many years ago. With Jesus in the vessel, we can smile at the storm, smile at the storm, smile at the storm. With Jesus in the vessel, we can smile at the storm. As we go sailing home, sailing, sailing home, sailing, sailing home. With Jesus in the vessel, we can smile at the storm. As we go sailing home. I'm not a soloist, but I, I do enjoy that, that song a lot. And it, it's all about this sort of experience. <clears throat> now, by saying all this, I don't mean to imply <clears throat> that we'll never have any uh, difficulties. Christians die, too, 
But there's the resurrection for the Christian, right? And that makes all the difference. In the end, God wins. And so we continue to trust, believe, and put our faith in him. But what's amazing about this passage is that it actually demonstrates both aspects of Jesus' personality. Certainly his humanity, but also his divinity. It's one thing to trust him for calm in the storm, but it's quite another to recognize in a new way that Jesus is the central character of the universe and of our world. And what's outstanding about this story is the largeness of Jesus' life and personality as he stands to rebuke the wind and speak peace to the raging seas, which instantly obey him. And in the midst of what you're going through, individually, as a family, or even as a church, it seems to me that it's important to come back to that question, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? And I want to ask you a question this morning. Have you considered the largeness of his life, that he is the sum total of what the Bible, what life, and what the universe, and what time is all about? It's all about Jesus. He really is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Nothing in the world is more important than Jesus and what we do with him. As Paul said to the Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn or the prototype, the man as God intended man to be over all creation. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything, he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Personally, I must say, I've thought a lot about this biblically revealed truth that Jesus is the sum total of what life is all about for how God longs for us to give him the honor and preeminence in our lives that he so deserves. Throughout history, Jesus has been recognized for his greatness. Napoleon Bonaparte, the great uh, leader, the great hero, the emperor of France at one time, I know men, he said, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Isn't that a testimony? H.G. Wells is an English science fiction writer of the last century. He says, I'm a historian. I'm not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth 
is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. I don't have it here. Some of you remember uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, television host, Larry King, Saturday Night Live. He said, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born because the answer to that question would define history. And then there's Albert Einstein. You know about him. He says, as a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I'm enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such a life. <clears throat> Somebody anonymously said, he is, Jesus Christ is the meeting place of eternity and time, the blending of deity and humanity, the junction of heaven and earth. You know, if you were to line up all the people in the world and represent them as images on a canvas relative to their significance, some would stand a little higher than others, and probably we would have no idea who those might be in the end, but in terms of our recognition of them, at least, and what they've accomplished because of the contributions they have made. And among them would be such great Christians such as Paul, Augustine, Luther. But all of these would be very, very small in comparison to Jesus, who would stand far above all. In fact, he would, he would fill the entire canvas. He would be, he would be above the canvas, <clears throat> Count Zinzendorf, German Lutheran pietist of the 18th century, who influenced the Moravian missionary movement, said, I have one passion. It is he, only he. And the point of all that I'm saying to you today is the evidence for the fact that God's revelation is all about Jesus. It's like the opening words the writer of Hebrews said in the letter to Jewish Christians, in the past... God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So the question is, what, what, what is God asking of us today as we consider these, these words? Well, there's much that we could say, say about that, but let me put down these three things. Uh, first of all, <clears throat> a principle to recognize him as a central figure of history and the fulfillment of all things. You know, everything, everything that you can possibly imagine will ultimately have its fulfillment in Jesus. You watch. You'll see. Just wait. It's going to happen. Everything will come to completion in this person, Jesus Christ. And then there's a personal application and that is, if this is so, 
Shouldn't we give him that place in our lives and in the church that he deserves to have Jesus? It's all about him. And if it's all about him, that's who he wants to be in our own lives. This is a decision, a choice that we must make. We must come to a place where we recognize this truth and say yes to Jesus. I want you to be preeminent in my life. And then, of course, there's a practical application to all of this. And it is to give him control of the storms that are raging in our own lives. Are there storms in your life today? Are there things that are happening that you don't know how in the world this is going to work out? Do you feel that? I sure do. <clears throat> Sometimes I wonder, how's, how's it all going to work out? But my place, my part, is to, to trust him and say, Lord, you're in charge. Could you quiet the storm? So with all this in mind, I want you to stand with me, and rather than sing a solo, I want you to sing it with me. Praise the name of Jesus. Praise the name of Jesus. He's my rock. He's my fortress. He's my deliverer. In him will I trust. Praise the name of Jesus. Praise the name of Jesus. Praise the name of Jesus. He's my rock. He's my fortress. He's my deliverer. In him will I trust. Praise the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you so much for your word. It's so good to read about Jesus and how he was able to just instantly calm the storm. It's wonderful to worship a, a Christ like this, the one who is both fully human and fully divine. Thank you for identifying yourself with us and becoming a servant and being willing to humble yourself even to the point of dying on the cross for our sins. Oh, God, what love we see in Jesus. What truth. What grace. Father, we thank you for, for these things this morning. And, Lord, your desire is that we might recognize who you are and give you that place in our lives that you deserve. And I pray this morning that we would do that and say yes to Jesus. Perhaps... This is the first time someone in, who's listening today is doing this. We ask that you would give them grace to do it, to say, yes, Lord, I recognize that Jesus is the, is the Christ, the supreme one, the one in, who created the world, the one who died for my sin. I pray, Lord, that you would give them the grace to do this today. And then for us who have known you, have put our faith in you, have trusted you as our Savior, may we this morning anew and afresh say, Lord, you're in charge. I want you to, to be Lord and master in my life. And then, Lord, regarding the, the storms that perhaps are in our lives today, whatever it is, we just want to commit them to you. And know that you are able to take care of them. Help us to trust you, as little children would. Help us to believe that you are able to, to manage. Help us to come to you again and again if we need to just to trust you, Lord, for your, 
your amazing grace in our lives. And it may not happen instantly as the waves did, but Lord, we know that you are able to change things as we continue to believe and trust in you. So we pray all these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. I asked our worship team if they would just lead us in a couple of worship songs, one that we've already sung.